hello, this Sid Roth, the Jewish man. That's Meshuggah for Yeshua. And now Meshuggah means crazy, and Yeshua is Hebrew for Jesus. So I'm the Jewish man that is Meshuggah for Yeshua. And some of you are laughing, and I have a question for you. Who are you Meshuggah for? I don't know anyone worth being Meshuggah for beyond Yeshua. My guest is Derek Frank. And uh, I, I have to tell you, this promises to be one of the most exciting interviews you have ever heard. It'll be almost as if you were an orphan and all of a sudden you found your natural parents. Uh, Derek, uh, you, you've had quite a walk in the Lord. Uh, you do not come from a Jewish background, uh, but uh, you went to Israel looking for a wife, and uh, God spoke to you on that trip. You did find your wife uh, after God said something very profound to you. What did he say? said it's almost now about 35 years ago, and uh, God had called me out of business. I was a very brash young businessman, and God called me out of business to be a pastor. Uh, the guys in the office when I mean, I was well known for being able to sell ice cream to Eskimos, and uh, the guys in the office, when they knew that I was being called to go and love a few people, be a pastor, <laughs> you could almost see the tears going down their face. Um, and I just knew that there was a truth in this. I needed a partner. Now, I was going out to Israel for that, that summer. I'd been out once before waiting to go there. I thought, hey, look, the most wonderful place in all the world will be to meet my future wife in Israel. And I was very much into sort of a faith movement then, uh, very much sort of name it and claim it. I thought, I'm going to dare to believe my future wife will even be sitting on the plane next to me as I fly out there. And I prayed this for weeks and weeks with rising faith until I got on the plane, and instead of the most beautiful woman in all the world sitting on the seat next to me, there was a little Jewish boy with his kipper, Rubik Cube in his hand, and he played with the Rubik Cube all the way through the flight. And I had no idea what God was saying to me. I prayed so hard. And vividly, I remember as I got off the, off the plane saying, God, what was that about? I felt God said to me, your first love has to be for a people who have a puzzle they cannot solve. And those words were just etched into my mind. No idea what to do with them. But I knew in that moment that this was like my marching instructions for years to come. And I would put a P.S. to that. They don't have all the pieces of the puzzle to even put it together. That's right. Actually, this, this guy, this young lad even took his Rubik Cube apart and put it back together. And I think that was such a, a prophetic picture. But it's often only in years later you realize how significant these prophetic pictures actually are. Okay, so approximately 25 years ago, all of a sudden you started getting a reoccurring vision over and over again in your dreams. Yeah. Yep. Tell me, uh, what was the vision? It was, in, it was in prayer meetings. It was here, there, and everywhere. And this was the height of the signs and uh, wonders with John Wimber around about 1990. And we were all praying, young people, and I'm a young pastor by this time, and I'm, I'm praying more of your spirit, Lord, more of your spirit. I pray it over myself. I pray it over others. And then I start getting this vision, and it's like the front of a Greek building with pillars and steps. And I see people going in and out. And I sense this as a church, except these people are in medieval costume. And then the vision moves to inside the building, and there are people there in modern-day uh, clothing. They've got headphones on. It's obviously a, a multilingual translation of a conference. And every time, the, the vision would simply end with the words, complete the Reformation. And this happened many times over. Now, but, but what did this mean? 
Well, this is the whole thing, Sid. I mean, I'm a young pastor with great visions of what, you know, I'm hoping God's going to do through me. But I got that word, and I'm trying to get people who are into prophetic interpretation to explain it, and most people reckon I'm off the wall. And it, I then understood what it was rather like for Joseph with his sheaf, telling his brothers that their sheaves were bowed out to his sheaf. I mean, this thing was so almost embarrassing, except it wouldn't stop happening. And so I said to God, look, please either stop the vision or explain it. And it stopped. What I didn't realize is that I would never be able to forget it. This thing traveled with me as such as the nature of prophetic vision. Um, there was no way I could purge it from myself. I just lived with this then for a few more years. Well, you went to what has been billed at one time as the stinkiest city of Europe, but, but then they got hit with the Reformation, and, and it became a wonderful city. Uh, you went to Geneva. Uh, why did you go there? That's right. <laughs> well, it's a long story, and actually God even had me, took me ending up there to be pastoring there for the last 11 years of my pastoral ministry. I didn't realize it when I was there. It was the first time in Geneva, Switzerland. My wife, Francoise, and I were walking through the old city uh, there, and as we're going through it, all of a sudden, I see this building, which is the exact building I've seen in my vision that I have seen so many times. It is precise to the last detail. Now, it's one thing anyway if you see something that in the flesh that you've only seen in the spirit before. That's pretty shocking. But I suddenly realized this was, as they call it there, the Cathedral of Saint-Pierre, the very place that John Calvin had preached the Reformation from. So here I've got this word, complete the Reformation, and the vision I'd seen was of the place that Calvin preached the Reformation from. Now, this was something which just shook me to pieces. I mean, my wife, Francois, she's just laughing her head off uh, at one level because it was just so funny. My, hey, I didn't know what to do with myself. But I knew there and then that that vision truly was from God, and I had to get to the bottom of whatever this assignment was. That would have been one of the most exciting moments of my life, to have this reoccurring vision, and then smack right in front of my face in Geneva, Switzerland, there is the exact building. So now you're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So scary the other way. I don't mean it faithlessly, but I mean, you're just left thinking... What, me? I mean, how am I meant to complete the Reformation? What am I able to do? I mean, you think of the reforms like Calvin and Luther and the greatness of their achievements. Um, you know, I'm an energetic guy. I'm a workaholic, or at least I hope not so much now, but back then I really was. But, you know, however hard I work, whatever I do, I mean, <laughs> how do you complete the Reformation? Well, well, Geneva was known as a great, great uh place for Christians to be educated, a, a, a Christian city, if you will, a place, a city of refuge. Uh, but you found out there was one people group excluded. Explain. And that's exactly it. Said so All I could do, I had no idea what to do. So I started reading the Reformation. Now, anyone who's ever tried to do this, I mean, it's shelfuls in libraries of books. They're big, they're heavy, they're oh, so weighty. And I'm saying, God, I can't find the answer. And one day, one little story, you know, not by might, not by my power, but by my spirit. I've done all this reading. God gives you one little story and unhooks the whole thing. And here it is. About 50 years before John Calvin ever got to Geneva, Switzerland, the 
Jewish people had been evicted out of the city. Anti-Semitism, though they didn't use that title in those days, was rife across medieval Europe. The Jewish people were blamed for everything. The Jewish people had been evicted from the city, and they were not allowed back into the city until 200 years after Calvin's death. So, in other words, Geneva, the city of the Reformation, gets absolutely transformed. It's a city of refuge that the, uh, the, the Protestant refugees can turn to and be taken in by. But the one people group who are not allowed into the city were the Jewish people. So Geneva gets transformed. Lives get transformed. But the subliminal message which comes out of the Reformed gospel is this. Whatever else is being changed in lives, in society, whatever the amazing consequence, one thing is not to be changed. And that's our view of the Jewish people. They've always been cursed. They deserve to be cursed. They always will be cursed. And I realized in that moment that that was a thread, which was the great incompletion of the Reformation. They got hold of what salvation was about. We are saved by grace through faith. What they never got hold of was the understanding of the context of the gospel, which is God's continuing purposes for Israel. So they got one of the keys that the first believers had, but they never got the second key. In fact, it's not only that they didn't get the second key, but the gospel was then totally out of context. It was distorted. The gospel, you could say, came out reformed and actually also deformed. And that is what's been passed down to us to this day and affects the walk to this day of many believers, of many pastors, of many churches, without them even realizing. So this was the great incompletion of the Reformation that God was somehow calling me to do something about. Oh, there's a word that, uh, as a Jewish believer in the Messiah, I know very well, and I know the history of this. But uh, what would you, how would you define anti-Semitism? Well, anti-Semitism, we need to realize, Sid, is, is a new word, and the thing it describes is not new. It goes back almost to the very beginnings of the church. Okay, it was a couple of hundred years or so into the history of the church, which was a long way forward from the start. But from our angle, looking back, the cutting off of the church from the Jewish roots of its faith had all sorts of consequences, not only for the church, which was like a ship which got cut loose from its moorings so it could just drift anywhere, but also it set up the atmosphere of Jew hatred, you might say, the blaming of the Jewish people. Apparently they were called the Christ killers, though, as we, you and I would know, that is not the case. Uh, but nonetheless, they get blamed for that, and they become the cursed people. So the shockingness of the story of the church is that even back into the very early centuries, you can find great names like, let's say, Augustine or John Chrysostom, you know, these names of the great early fathers of the church, as it were, saying terribly anti-Jewish things, cursing them as if, well, I mean, one of the things Augustine said is, is something like that the, the Jewish people, the model of the Jewish person is Judas Iscariot. They were the sons of God, now they're the sons of the devil. This is the sort of thing that people like Augustine were saying. And that is tracked through history, surfacing and dying down at different times, but rising in medieval Europe prior to the, the Reformation. And then, of course, we know the history. But, but, but you know what, what kind of blows my mind as a Jewish believer in Jesus? Jesus made the statement, you will know my disciples by their love. Didn't they read the same Bible we did? And this shows how 
far the gospel is distorted from the truth. This is what happened right back at the start, Sid. The degree of deception, which has come through what we call replacement theology, the belief that the church has replaced Israel in God's purposes, is when you dig back into it, it's actually the most demonic conspiracy. It not only robbed the church of its identity, but what it did to God's chosen people is is just beyond belief. You don't have to read far into church history and the history of the ages to discover the damage done to these people, that God says they're my chosen people. These are the people that he has chosen to love with an everlasting love. And what is the church doing to them? It's cursing them. And as I understand the promises of God, uh, there's blessings for blessing the Jew, curses for cursing, and you're telling me uh, the only people on earth representing God's kingdom were coming under a curse. And that's what's happened through history. And this is what tracks down to this day, Sid, is what, if you look at today's church, you have to ask yourself, why is it that the church sort of works, but doesn't completely work? And many people come into the church and they truly encounter what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And they're set free from sin. They may know healings. They may know deliverances. They may know miracles. But when you look at the church today, can you really say we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world? I mean, why is it that the world is so much better at changing the church than the church is at changing the world. I mean, is it that the gospel is not what Yeshua said it was? Or is it that we've not got hold of the gospel? And the only conclusion is that there is some very big missing link. And this is what goes back to the Reformation. They got hold of one key, but not the other key. Let me give you an example. Uh, Sid, I'm getting older now, but I've, for about the last 40 years, I've been a very keen skier. I love skiing. And I can still manage to ski on my two legs. But even when I was younger, skiing on one leg is very difficult to do for any great distance. We used to try with friends, how far can you ski on one leg before you fall over? And it's like even walking or running. You need two legs. Now, the church that came out of the Reformation had one leg. It had an understanding of salvation. But its other leg, its other ski, however you want to understand it, it didn't have. So it sort of hobbled along, and it's hobbled down to today. And that is why the church has a certain power, but a very limited power. Well, you know, you, you point out uh, in, your, in your book, in your uh, DVD, uh, that, that the Jew has become such a scapegoat. That, uh, tell me about what happened with the Jewish people when the Black Plague hit. Well, this is the whole thing, that they were in Geneva, they in Geneva, Switzerland, they were blamed for what had happened. It had nothing to do with them whatsoever, but they were scapegoated. Now, once you understand the dynamics of anti-Semitism, all you see behind it is the malevolence of the devil. You see, the malevolence of the devil that puts blame onto the Jewish people because he hates the Jewish people so much, and he wants to do everything he can to get them to be despised, to be them excluded, because, as we understand from Scripture, they are the apple of God's eye. And so the Jewish people became the scapegoat at that time. And in many senses, what happened at the Reformation, anti-Semitism went clean under the radar of the Reformation. So at the Reformation, what happens is it looks as if they've got the complete gospel. Lives are changed. Society has changed. But in that little phrase, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, what they got was truth. In some senses, you could say what they got was the whole truth, was nothing but the truth. What they did not get was the whole truth. 
which is God's continuing love for the people of Israel, these people he chose, first of all, to reveal himself to and through, and who he has promised to never, ever cease to love until his purposes are fully outworked through them. That's what Satan hates so much. That's what's even going on in the rise of anti-Semitism. Well, it's impossible to understand end-time events if you don't have a proper understanding of Israel and the Jew. Uh, It's impossible uh, to be walking under the blessings of God if you're cursing the Jew in your theology. But there was something that you said that I never thought about before. Pope Innocent III was probably one of the first people that had a decree that Jews had to wear identity marks uh, on their clothing and they segregated Jewish people into ghettos. Uh, No wonder Hitler justified his actions by saying he's only following the actions of the church for the last 1,500 years. Absolutely. And that tracks back, he particularly going back to Luther. And one of the shocking things... I'll tell you what, hold that thought, because I think people will be shocked when they hear about the 65,000-word document by Martin Luther entitled On the Jews and Their Lives. Uh, this, This was horrific. How could such a man that did so much good do so much evil? I mean, it's beyond my comprehension, but I want to make available to you, and I'm so excited to make this available to you. Uh, We call it the Great Escape Package. It's the new book, Escaping the Great Deception, and the DVD, it's also Blu-ray, so you you that have Blu-ray will be able to use this. It's called Let the Line Roar, and There are people listening to us right now that do have a love for the Jew in Israel, and they have so many friends that do not have a love for the Jew in Israel. So many friends that are under a curse and don't even know they're under a curse. So many friends that are walking around with orphan spirits because they don't know really who they've been grafted into. They have no clue about end times, and there's something about this uh, DVD and Blu-ray that will transcend, I mean, a lot lot of people like this aren't going to read a book, but they'll sit down and and watch a one-hour video, and you have jammed so much information in this video that I would venture to guess 99.9% of the Christians that are listening to us right now have never been told, even if they've gone to Bible college. They've never even heard of these things. Uh, in fact, uh, one, a member of our staff got a hold of your DVD, listened to it, and then said, I need to get one of these for every member of my family. They don't know what they're doing to themselves. Uh, so we're making the book and the DVD available for an investment of $25. Let me read a letter that just came into the office. I'm so excited about it. It says, my first Sid Roth show I watched had the Muslim Dr. Nasser Siddiqui on it. I was so touched by the unbelievable supernatural story, I continued to watch more. I watched it on YouTube. One day, I watched all day long. I said, Lord, If you can deliver these people from all they've done and raise these people from the dead, surely you can deliver me from the torment of homosexuality. I have been free ever since. Now, that is what is going when you make an investment in tools that will do nothing but bless you and your friends 
But any profits we make and anything you give beyond the investment of $25 will be poured into Jewish ministry. We'll be right back with a shocking revelation of the two sides of Martin Luther. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. Hello, Sid Roth here with Derek Frank. And uh, uh, Derek, uh, in the previous segment, we were talking about that uh, Hitler, everything he did, except perhaps the gas chambers, uh, everything he did, he just justified by saying, well, these are the actions of the church for the last 1,500 years. You tell me it started getting very sick uh, after the Reformation, uh, and uh, Martin Luther had a lot to do with it. Explain. Okay, Sid, well, Martin Luther, who we generally think of very, very highly, and indeed we just you know, we owe so much to him for getting that breakthrough to understand that righteousness is not by works, but by faith. Medieval times, the Roman Catholic Church has this incredible hold on the people about particularly having to pay for penances for their sins, and it was such a money-making thing for, for the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther really was just so shocked and shaken. In his spirit, he just knew that this was wrong. And it's an incredible God story that, that takes some telling how he got the breakthrough to realize that this was absolute deceit and falsehood, that salvation could only ever be received as a gift, as a gift of God's grace alone that had to be received through faith. He gets his great breakthrough, absolute transformation of his life. He is just so excited. He starts sharing this, and there's this great challenge that he makes to the whole Roman Catholic Church, uh, and the great showdowns, one man he has. And this, he is just astounding. This is the caliber of the man. And amongst all this, he has a great vision for the Jewish people to convert, and he has high, high expectations. And the, the sad thing is that in the short term, it would seem nothing happened. In fact, longer term, it was longer and longer. Nothing happens. They do not budge. And Luther turns right round, and by having written positively about the Jewish people earlier and having spoken about, he even says, you know, to the Pope, um, you know, these, these people are so much nearer to Jesus than you or I. If you want to revile me, revile me as a half-Jew. And so Luther has this profound heart for the Jewish people, but here's a very big giveaway, and one of the things I got into reading. His understanding was that they would come over to us. There was this obviously understanding deep down, as, as Luther saw it, was that if conversion took place in the Jewish people, they would be converted into the Gentile church. There's the beginnings of replacement theology. Now, we didn't use the word replacement theology in those days, but there was this, like, the reverse grafting. It was how he saw it. So, so, so you're saying that what happened, according to Scripture, is Gentiles were grafted into the Jewish olive tree, but, the, uh, but then when the Gentiles got in the majority, uh, they wanted to graft Jewish people into the Gentile olive tree. Uh, at this point... This is much earlier on in Luther's life. You realize where he's actually coming from. And it's just like a seed or a weed that grows and grows. So the Jewish people don't convert. 
And then Luther turns right round, and he, re- he, he wrote this 65,000-word uh, thesis or book on the Jews and their lies, and it is the most vitriolic piece of wording you can imagine. And he says incredible things about how Christians should burn their synagogues, burn their schools, break it. How, how can a man that's, that did so much, the, the whole Reformation, risked his life over this, turn to such hatred as burning synagogues, burning the, the Torahs. Sid, this is where the journey God took me on, um, was to think exactly this. I then dug into Calvin and what went on with Calvin. Calvin modeled his Geneva, Switzerland, on the city of God of Augustine in the 5th century. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. That is what Calvin built it on. Calvin actually based his Institutes of the Christian Religion back on much of the writings of Augustine. He took that as his baseline. You dig into Augustine, and Augustine is anti-Semitic. So what you've got is anti-Semitism, not just impacting reformers like Luther and Calvin, but the early church fathers. Now, these men wrote many, many very, very good things. And the only conclusion you can get to is behind all this is a demonic conspiracy. How else could it be that these key men could be so warped and distorted? They were great, great men in so many ways. We owe so much to them. But they were victims of a demonic conspiracy which has its start right at the back at the beginning of the church. And it's that demonic conspiracy which went past the church in its 4th, 5th century that goes past the Reformation that comes to us today and is impacting today's church. And I want to venture, Sid, in the times, we don't know how near we are to the end times. We might be much nearer than we realize. There may be battles much closer to us than we actually appreciate. Things could tip over much sooner than we think. And my huge concern is for the church today that if it is still founded on this lie, its vulnerability when the shaking starts will be huge. This is why we have to tackle the lie of replacement theology, expose it for what it is, expose the demonic conspiracy behind it, and then get into the truth that the church can really stand on. Give me a simple definition of replacement theology. Replacement theology is the view that the church has replaced Israel in God's purposes. Now, if someone was to say to you, Derek, give me your biggest zinger as to why that is not true. Basically, Sid, if you read Scripture, God does not land in somewhere in the New Testament with a very simple gospel, which is all about personal salvation and how I can just be saved and go to heaven when I die and that God has just met my needs. The story of Scripture is God chooses a nation. He chooses to reveal himself to them and through them. He says, I want you to be a holy nation. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I promise you in this tough assignment for you to be like a light to the Gentile nations. It's going to be a tough assignment, but I will love you with an everlasting love. And only if someone could actually manage to count all the stars in the sky and all the atoms in the subatomic structure. Will I ever give up on you, however sinful you are? And this was the degree of God's commitment. Yet most would say uh, Jewish people rejected their call uh, by uh, turning from Jesus. And in one sense, they would be right, except the calling of the Jewish people was to serve rather than just to be saved. There was not automatic salvation for them. That was still their choice. But they were never to be off this hook of serving as this people that God would choose to reveal himself 
to and through. And this is why they are the focus of the devil's hatred, because of this unique calling they have amongst all the nations of the world, which stands literally to this very moment and will right through to the end times. So it, it must have shook the devil to his very core. He, he had to be so threatened by the fact that the Jew had this God uh, or uh, anointing, if you will, for service on the outside. And once this, the Jew had God on the inside was born from above, uh, th- that had to really cause a problem for uh, hell. So this is exactly it. I mean, the way I would put it is the devil's reaction, for want of a more theological expression, this was his kickback once the toothpaste was out of the tube. The Jewish Messiah had come, and he was being received by the Jewish people, and they now had the light of the world in them. These were the people who turned the world upside down. They didn't have our New Testament. They just had their Jewish scriptures. They had their Jewish heritage. They carried even on even going, still going to the synagogue. And these are the people that the Spirit first came on. And the devil could do nothing about it. The toothpaste was out of the tube. Worse still, there were even Gentiles joining them and understanding the Jewish roots of the faith. And all he could do was then to divert these believers onto another course. It was like, he could, if you've got a ship that's moored, he cut the mooring and left the ship to drift. He didn't know where it would drift to, but he knew it would just drift into danger sooner or later, as any ship does. If you set it free, sooner or later it's going to hit some rocks somewhere. So, uh, you know, You're explaining something that I was pondering uh, a month or so ago uh, when uh, the Prime Minister of Israel came to the United States, Netanyahu. He gave a speech that... Uh, the present, I, I, I have to tell you, the presence of God was on that speech. Yet, uh, as far as I know, he's not a believer in the Messiah. But the, he was—he almost stood up like an old covenant prophet, as far as I was concerned. And I could literally feel the presence of God on what he was saying. So you're saying that presence there. What would happen when Jesus is on the inside if we have so much going on on the outside? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And that speech, if I remember correctly, is actually the Purim and all the significance of how God could use a man like that. Now, this is why the devil had to do what only he could. He couldn't stop the gospel reaching the world. It was out. But he could then set the church off disconnected from its moorings, and not only did it let the church drift into all the loss of the understanding of the gospel and so on, but it left the messianic believers isolated. They were caught between a rock and a hard place. They were no longer a part of the Gentile church. They were then separate from Judaism. And this is why the messianic believers were were just left in that in, in that isolated place. And Israel, out of replacement theology, did not get the witness from the church that it then needed. You could add on to that as well, the consequence of replacement theology. It left a spiritual vacuum that the church had left into which Islam could actually be birthed. I'm not sure Islam could have been birthed if the church had had actually not got into replacement theology. Well, the way I look at it is when the church is wrong or an individual Christian is wrong on the Jew in Israel, it leads to so much horrific error uh, that it's the beginning almost of them leaving true Christianity. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that struck me, the more I've gone on with this, Sid, is it, it's a very simple series of joining the dots, but it's very shocking in what it actually amounts to. Once you say the church has completely replaced Israel, you, the next step is you say, so grace has completely replaced law. Once grace takes over, this is actually the ticket for things like gay marriage or abortion. You start saying, oh, grace covers everything. And so where replacement theology starts way back there, best bit of 2,000 years ago, actually has implication for how the church is living to this day and not walking in the blessing that God intended it to have if it had stayed rooted as it should have been in the Jewish roots of the faith. But one thing that gets me very, very upset is I see so clearly the strategy of the devil— He has the Jews become knowledgeable of this anti-Semitism that you point out in your book, in your DVD, very clearly. We Jewish people know about that. He has the Christians totally unknowledgeable about how anti-Semitic Christians have been over the centuries. Then he he has Christians spiritualize the promises for the Jew in Israel, gets them totally off base as far as end-time understanding, gets them into the dangerous area of perhaps even cursing the Jewish people. So, uh, I mean, he has a brilliant strategy. Uh, you say that that strategy is over. At the fullness of the Gentiles. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, here, I, I would want to just say, type, sort of take one step back from that to say, you know, a, a phrase I heard someone remind me of the other day is the way Charles Dickens um, opens uh, the story of the tale of two cities, saying it's the worst, uh, the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And I think we live in a day and age where we are seeing simultaneously the best of times and the worst of times. There, there is a terrible. A catalogue of catastrophe that's not only happening to the church, to the world, but imminently potentially about. And we can despair, and we can say it just seems that the devil's having a walkover. But actually, the incredible thing in Romans chapter 11, before it speaks about all Israel being saved, it speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. And in my understanding, what that actually is, and this is the most exciting thing, because if all Israel is going to be saved, then it means the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in. And the fullness of the Gentiles is when there is a sufficient body of Gentile believers who actually understand what it is to be rooted in the Jewish faith, understand how it is that we have been grafted into Israel, that we walk in that calling God has given to us as Gentile believers to be so empowered by the blessing that brings that it actually makes Israel envious. They envy what we've got. Now, at the moment, most of Israel would look at at the Gentile church and say, there's not much to envy there. And that's because we're not walking in that anointing. But we're promised that the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in. Now, this doesn't mean to say every last Gentile believer is going to get it, but there is going to be a sufficient presence in the Gentile church of those who really have got it. God's anointing is on them, and that there is such an empowering of this that the Israeli nation and Jewish people in particular will suddenly understand that puzzle they couldn't solve. Now, in the Greek, the word fullness... Uh, has a very interesting meaning. What is that? Now, in the Greek, 
the word fullness, and it's translated often wrongly in many translations, but it's a Greek word, pleroma, which means the most incredible, comprehensive um, fullness. So you see it in Colossians 2, 9, where it talks about the fullness of the deity that was in the Messiah. That's pleroma. It's an incredible comprehensiveness. So it's not just some numerical number of Gentiles getting saved, and once we pass the magic number, then all Israel will be saved. It is about something profound happening in the Gentile church. So this is why it's both the worst of times, but also the best of times, because however difficult times get, there is the opportunity, even now, for Gentile believers to reverse the curse of replacement theology. And and you know what? It's uh, exactly—it's not that uh, we're waiting for God to do something, because he made it very clear in the Scriptures. uh, In in Luke 21-24, he says that uh, when Jerusalem is no longer trodden down by the Gentiles— that's the time for the spiritual scales to come off of the Gentile eyes. Or uh, the, the, the word uh, fullness could be translated maturity. So therefore, I can tell you as a fact uh, that even though I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, that those scales have come off of my eyes. And wherever I go, Jewish people are falling in love with Jesus. What would happen if the church was like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things which has struck me so much, just as I've thought about this, you know, when you look at the the sermon that that, that Peter preaches at Acts, Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 2, there's 26 verses, he only uses two of those verses to present what we today would call the gospel about uh, repent for the forgiveness of sins, be baptized, uh, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He uses the previous 24 verses to talk about God's continuing purposes for Israel. Now, he's preaching to presumably that crowd of 3,000 were about 99.9% Jewish. And if he has to preach that sermon to the Jewish people, how much more does this have to be preached to the Gentile church? We have scales over our eyes. We're so blind to the big picture of God's calling of this particular nation, the chosen people. And we so need to get those Scales off our eyes so that we can see the big picture of what it's about. And if replacement theology, you see the destructiveness of the lie, what does that point to the power of the truth? All, all Satan can ever do is destroy. He can't build. If, if that's the destruction he can cause, what is the construction of getting hold of that truth across huge numbers of Gentile believers? And that's why, even in the face of whatever's going to happen in the coming years, it's the finest of times potentially for Gentile believers, Gentile churches who get hold of this. Well, you know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing this could very well be the catalyst for the great move of God's Spirit on the whole world, not just Jewish people. Absolutely. And this is, to connect back to this first word, complete the Reformation, Calvin's view was of the Reformation was it should take the church back to where it began. Now, he... I'll tell you what, when we come back, I'd like to find out uh, what that actually means and what benefit it is for a Gentile believer uh, to no longer be an orphan. Uh, but I want to read another letter to you, and this is amazing to me. Uh, I'll kind of paraphrase it. I got a letter from TBN's Italian affiliate, and this is what he says. Television Christiana in Italia. I don't know if you're aware or not, 
but we have been translating and voice overdubbing your programs into Italian for the past couple of years. You and your program, It's Supernatural, are very much appreciated by our audiences, so much so that if we put you on the time slot in prime time, seven days a week, in addition, we re-air the program the following morning, I didn't even know it was on the air. I remember a few years ago, someone from Italy wrote me and said, I want to translate your program. Do I have permission? And I said, yes. And that's the last I heard of it. But for the last few years, our show has been all over Italy. Can, and as a matter of fact, uh, Derek Frank, uh, Italy, with its Catholic backgrounds, has had, unfortunately, a sad, sad history of, of anti-Semitism that most people aren't aware of. Uh, so our show is going to be in Italian in Italy prime time. Now, that's called favor. And when we come back, Derek, I want you to talk about the favor that is available to the church when they understand they're grafted in to the Jew, Abraham. Be right back. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. Hello, Sid Roth here with Derek Frank, and we're talking about his new DVD, Blu-ray, Let the Line Roar, and his book, Escaping the Great Deception. Uh, now, Derek, uh, Paint a picture for me of what happens to a Christian where the light goes on. They have been either neutral or actually against the Jew in Israel uh, just because that's, that's the roots of the church. Uh, not the original roots, but that's, that's where, where we were taken. Uh, what difference is it going to make in their life? One of the really quite shocking things, as I've shared this message with many people, is the difficulty in the short term they can get of, of actually getting hold of this message. Um, and my, my, my best illustration I've been able to come up with, it's rather like if you're sitting on a chair on a piece of chewing gum, you have no idea you're doing, you're actually glued to the chair till you try to get up. And this has been an experience of how deeply um, replacement theology actually has a hold over believers. They don't realize until they try and step out of it. And it can take quite a lot of work, first of all, to help people realize the lie there is in replacement theology, the many consequential lies. There's a whole catalog of them that we share in our book, Escaping the Great Deception. And Often the first stage is to help people realize how they have actually imbibed lies, like, for example, treating the promises to Israel allegorically rather than literally, uh, thinking that God's promises that apparently are unconditional can be made conditional. Uh, many different ways replacement theology can actually... As you point out, for those that think uh, they were conditional promises with the Jew in Israel and the Jews uh, just blew it, uh, then what if those promises are conditional for the church? <laughs> it's too late for the church. And, they, and often you have to take people through this, and it even takes them some time to get it. One of the things that often impacts people is to say, look, God passionately loves these people. He doesn't promise to like them passionately, but he promises to love them passionately. If we do not love, 
what he loves passionately, is there a gap between us and God? And it takes people to get an eye. It takes time. It's like in a marriage. One partner passionately loves something, the other doesn't. There's a gap. That marriage is vulnerable. It takes time, first of all, Sid, to work this through. And sometimes people have to be brought to a point of repentance over falsehoods they've believed unwittingly that they have to repent of. And that is the first thing to, to get them to repent, to renounce the lies. Now, having done that, the way is then clear to get into the truth. And there's an incredible empowering when people realize, hey, the Lord is not just the Lamb of God. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In fact, Revelation 5 shows how the one who became the Lamb is actually the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the one who has power and purpose, which is sovereign and which will be outworked literally. Now, one of the great lines of replacement theology is that there isn't really an end-time kingdom. This is why people are so hooked up on the tribulation. I've been amazed coming over to America how concerned people are, whether I am pre-trib or post-trib. This is the crucial tenet of faith, it seems to many. They are blind to the triumph which follows the tribulation. The tribulation seven years. The, the triumph that follows in the kingdom is for a thousand years. That, by my math, is about 150 times longer. And you suddenly realize that this is a literal promise that when all Israel is saved, Yeshua returns, we're told we'll be with the Lord forever. Well, where's he going to be? He, he's in Jerusalem. He's reigning in a literal kingdom. And we right now should be training for reigning. And this is one of the things you suddenly realize that over and beyond everything that's going on right now, there is a glorious end-time kingdom. So when people come up to you and say, oh, I don't know where the world's going to, what's it all coming to, we can give them an answer. It's a very, very, very powerful answer. We can tell them not only what the world is coming to, but who's coming to it and what he's going to do. All things are going to be made new in a literal, not an ethereal way. And this starts to become very, very empowering. And as you do this, you realize that that promise that God made to uh, Abraham, that those who would bless him would be blessed, and those who would curse him would be cursed. You start to find this happening in your life. Things happen that you would not believe otherwise. Now, you've mentioned the film we've made. We started just three years ago. My wife, my daughter, meet around a kitchen table in a little village in France. If you'd said to me, three years from now, you'll be talking to Sid Roth on the radio, I would have fallen off my chair. But it's just one personal illustration. You start traveling this journey and seek more, and God gives more and more and more. And it is amazing the power that there is in simply taking hold of this message and saying, God, open my eyes and use me to open the eyes of others. Well, you just happen to have a daughter who is a filmmaker. Uh, you had this vision, reoccurring vision from God, but from point A to B to where you are right now, if you hadn't taken a little step at a time, you never would have gotten there. Tell us a bit about the movie. Who's in it? Uh, what, what I'll benefit from by watching it? Film is a miracle in itself. I mean, we have worked hard and we've traded so much to, to enable it to, to happen. But honestly, anything we've done or traded is as nothing compared with the, the miracle because we've ended up with Hollywood actors in the film. So we've got Kevin Sorbo, we've got Eric Roberts and Stephen Baldwin. Uh, we've got people from the faith film world like Jason Berkey. And amazingly, we have a whole uh, raft of messianic leaders 
people like um, Chuck Pierce, and uh, we've got Mark Biltz, we've got Jonathan Bennis, Paul Wilbur, and even more amazingly, you yourself, Sid, were so good to come and take time uh, to film. And I cannot tell you what a miracle it was that people's diaries were available to come and the amazing way this came together. And it was an astounding encouragement to us to have the support of such people um, who, as we felt our way forward, that the Lord had actually affirmed to them the crucial importance of being available to come and film. Has a film like this ever been done before? As far as we know, in the realm of faith film and even the realm of film as a whole, what we have is utterly, utterly unique. It's a 60-minute docudrama. It's done in this way so that people who know nothing about church history, who know nothing about replacement theology, all they need to do is find the on button on the DVD player, and this will take them through because it is done visually. I'm talking to you with words at the moment, but pictures are worth a thousand words. So it is acted out, it's enactments which help people to see what it looked like, for example, when... um, let's say, John Chrysostom, is saying incredibly anti-Semitic things. You need to see it before your eyes to actually see what it felt like. Yeah, you actually put me in the role of a Holocaust uh, prisoner. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it, it was quite an experience for me to put on the same outfit that someone in the Holocaust had and that yellow Jewish star on, on my chest. I actually put myself in that role when I did your film. Absolutely, Sid. And what we saw each time that this happened, God's anointing comes on, and as people who uh, who get hold of this package will see, it's not only the docudrama and the book which goes with it, but also with it is a whole series of extra bonus features where many of the cast actually share from their own personal conviction that what the message of this film means to them. And it's a funny thing. Sometimes people have to watch the film several times through before they get it, and then they do, and then they can't unsee it once they've seen it. Others have actually found the the things, the, the, the clips that the different members of the cast shared themselves actually to be more helpful. And of course, as you well remember, Sid, when you were sharing how the spirit came on you in the studio, it's the most extraordinary thing how there we were in the studio with all the wires and lights and all the things that go on with filming that people don't see when they only see the finished picture. We're, we're just in this with all this going on. And the spirit so came on you in that moment moment, it, it was a very, very powerful experience, even for us just to watch the filming. And for us, it was such a mark of God's anointing and God's presence uh, with us in this project. Uh, you, you know, I believe that there are people listening to us just from the little bit we've shared that are being convicted of anti-Semitism. The world is doing horrific things to Jewish people. We, uh, if you just read the newspaper, you see what's going on in Paris, uh, France today. Uh, you see what's, uh, what's, what's going on throughout Europe. Uh, uh, mo- the Jewish community is being warned they must leave immediately and get to Israel. Uh, that same spirit that was going on it, just as Hitler was taking power, that same spirit's occurring today. Uh, and a little leaven will ruin the whole loaf. So I believe that you could lead us in a prayer of repentance right now that will literally impact the lives of those that are listening. Father God, we just so thank you for your purposes that you sovereignly chose to bring about through this nation of Israel, that you you chose to be 
the apple of your eye, and we just bow our knee to your ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. And Lord, for any believers who are realizing now that they've been caught perhaps quite unwittingly in replacement theology, into anti-Semitism, into just not loving these people you chose to love with an everlasting love, Lord, we just pray for the, the conviction of your Spirit, where there is a need for repentance, that they would be enabled to repent, that you would release them from bondage, that you would just lift that veil from their eyes, that they would understand what there is. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In the Messiah, Yeshua, there is no condemnation, but there is conviction. And so, Lord God, we ask you right now, by the power of your Spirit, to touch them very deeply, to release them, and to empower them to go out with the good news, the amazing news of what it is that you have chosen these people who you will be faithful to through to the end times, that they may indeed be enabled to be part of your purposes, that they may proclaim the great and glorious news of what you are still going to do through this nation, even maybe in the coming years in our time. Lord, just release them, we pray, with the power of your Spirit to speak about this for your praise and your glory. Amen. And the good news is, if you confess your sins, he's just and faithful to forgive you of all unrighteousness, and you can literally reverse the curse if you've ever uh, done anything against Jewish people, said anything against Jewish people, even having bought into uh, the allegorical teaching that the church is the new Israel, that's anti-Semitism. I want you to repeat after me. Say, dear God, say it out loud, dear God, please forgive me for every anti-Jewish thought and word and action I have ever committed. I am so sorry. I believe the blood of Jesus will reverse the curse and give me your heart and your love for Israel and the Jewish people. Amen. Well, I believe some amazing things are going to happen in your life, but I want to get to you as soon as possible uh, what we call the Great Escape Package. You'll be amazed how well this is put together. The book has point-by-point things that very few Christians have ever heard, but the DVD is such a supernatural DVD. Uh, It's called Let the Line Roar. And it's not just DVD. It's available on DVD, Blu-ray, uh, the book in, and the DVD. And the and by the way, it's uh, how many different translations is available? We've got it in 19 different languages, Sid. And if I can just add just, just one word, the, really the message gave, God gave to us doing this is we were not just to release a movie, but a movement. I mean, there's no way that I can complete the Reformation, as I began to realize. But I can share that message, and I can call many, many other people to also complete the Reformation. And it's simply all that we need is for people just to get hold of this for themselves and then just to share it with others, which is why we packaged it as we did so that you need not be embarrassed to hand it on to people. It's a high-quality presentation package, and the more people you hand it on with, the more you yourself 
can get into those conversations that God can anoint. And you can see before your eyes scales falling off other people's eyes. And we've had any number of stories of people just saying, thank you so much for giving us a unique resource that does not exist anywhere else. I never knew how to talk to other people about Israel and the Jewish people. You've put in my hand a package I can proudly and confidently give to others, and that will, in one sense, do the work, in another sense, open the door for the Spirit to, to also do His work. And that's the thing we just want to encourage people to do, to please get this not just for themselves, but to share it with others, that it's not just about a movie, it's about a movement. And I'm reminded of what God Himself said to you. Your first love must be for a people who have a puzzle they cannot solve. And this movie, the DVD, the Blu-ray, and the book will give you God's heart at this moment in history that it could not be more crucial. Maybe this is why you haven't walked into your fullness yet. I believe it is. Available for an investment of $25. This is Sid Roth, the Jewish man that's Meshuggah for Yeshua. Who are you Meshuggah for? To place a credit card order for today's offer, call anytime at 1-800-447-2697. That's 1-800-447-2697. Or log on to our website at www.sidroth.org. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. Discover how you can begin watching for free our 24-hour, 7-day-a-week TV network, ISN, the It's Supernatural Network. You can write me at Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. That's Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.